Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Michael Ameko from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Inside School Food is back. Welcome to our first episode for Autumn 2015. I'm your host, Laura Stanley, and I just have to say it feels really good to be back behind the mic here at Heritage Radio Network. Today we bring you the first of three special episodes in honor of Back to School. Uh, To kick off the series, we are really pleased to have with us today the two newly elected leaders of the School Nutrition Association. President Jean Ronnie joins us from St. Paul, Minnesota, where she serves as Chief Operations Officer for St. Paul Public Schools. Uh, Vice President Dr. Lynn Harvey is Chief of School Nutrition Services for the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction, coming us to today from Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, like everyone who has assumed these offices before them, Jean and Lynn have been leaders within the SNA and the larger school nutrition community for many years. Uh, Jean Ronnie is best known for her 24 years as Director of Nutrition Services at St. Paul Public Schools. The district serves just under 40,000 students, and it's extremely diverse. Um, at home, St. Paul kids are speaking more than 125 languages and dialects. Under Jean's leadership, St. Paul became an early national standard bearer for the kind of progressive work we spend so much time talking about here on Inside School Food. Uh, when I visited the district back in 2009, and that's six years ago, Jean's um, team was already piloted piloting fresh local chicken and aggressively expanding farm-to-school purchasing. Um, They were developing new culturally sensitive menu items in close collaboration with parents and students. House-made grab-and-go breakfast was free. Every school had an all-you-can-eat salad bar. Uh, The district was baking baguettes and other specialty breads with 51% whole grain. In other words, they were already on board with the current whole grain rich standard. And with help from School Food Focus, Jean managed to get um, the district's commercial bread vendor to agree to a 51% whole grain formula that the company soon began offering to schools nationally. The added sugar in chocolate milk came down at the same time, and that also catalyzed a national trend. Um, At the same time, Jean was already emerging as a national spokesperson on behalf of the SNA. She advocated compellingly for the association's request for 35 cents additional reimbursement. Um, In an October 2009 interview, it's again six years ago, um, and this was on the Splendid Table on American Public Media, Jean said, and I quote, "Um, people will be amazed to find how little money we receive to run this business, and trust me, it is a business. 
So, Lynn, uh, Lynn Harvey handles a complex set of responsibilities in North Carolina, but what she asked me to emphasize is that she's a pediatric nutritionist and that this is central to her professional identity. She also holds a doctorate from North Carolina State University, where she completed a dissertation examining the perceptions, current practices, and barriers to bringing more healthful food choices to North Carolina schools. On the job, Lynn has led her state school nutrition team for 12 years, including oversight of all the federally reimbursed meals programs in the schools. And she's a writer. Uh, Lynn was awarded the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Media Excellence Award for Excellence in Journalism that promotes healthy lifestyles. Uh, She's written a book called Never Diet Again, A Guide to Food and Fitness, um, and all $70,000 in proceeds from that project were donated to hunger relief efforts in her state. So, Lynn and Jean, welcome to Inside School Food. Thank you for having us. Um, I'd like to start off by stating the obvious. Um, you're, you're both assuming office at the most challenging time in the 69-year history of the School Nutrition Association. Did either of you hesitate before deciding to take this on? And Jean, I'll start with you. Absolutely not. Okay. I love the association. It has given me so much and so many of our members so much over the years. And in particular, I just... I simply admire our members. They are so dedicated to the children that they serve in their programs. And having had experience in many other food service fields, I I have never felt the passion for any other field like school lunch, right. school meals, I should say. And what about you, Lynn? I would echo Jean's comments. It's a great privilege to serve our members. Mm-hmm. They're so deeply committed to our students, to their optimal growth development and academic success, and they value the relationship they have as as part of the instructional day. So, indeed, no hesitation whatsoever. I'm thrilled to be here. All right. Well, you're both brave women. (laughs) Um, I feel like the public and even people working in school food are, are, you know, these days tripped up by misinformation, conflicting information, and information reported only partially and from one or another partisan point of views. You know, there's been a public show of disagreement regarding current SNA positions from a group of former SNA uh, presidents. And and yet, I'd say for all the conflict the profession is laboring under these days, from where I sit, you know, school food has never looked as progressive, hopeful, or healthful as it does now. Uh, Would you say I'm right? Who wants to take that? Jean? Yeah. Well, that'll be helpful. Um, you know, yes, I would say that it is, we're kind of both waiting. We're so being so polite here yes, to make sure good. that we take care of ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we we are definitely in a great place in terms of where school meals have come. come. I mean, I remember 26 years ago, we were making chocolate-covered donuts. We had deep fryers everywhere. You know, the school meals programs have changed dramatically from the iceberg lettuce days to romaine um, or spinach on, on every every school lunch uh, choice bar that we have mm-hmm. in St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, we're in a great place right now. Um, the challenge, I think, is that um, we are, the School Nutrition Association, our members, have been viewed as somehow wanting to, quote-unquote, roll back uh, requirements. And um, that's, un- that's unfortunate because it is a misrepresentation of 
what our association, our members have been striving for for right. so long. I'd like to get the, to that um, in a minute, but just regarding what you just said, Jean, about um, things really having changed over your years, and Lynn, your years too in, in school nutrition. Um, maybe here's one for you, Lynn. I mean, to what extent do you think we can credit the progress we're seeing to Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act? I think the act certainly moved forward the great process that was begun with the Child Nutrition Reauthorization of 2004. Uh, The introduction of local wellness policies and and the requirement for local boards of education to become engaged in overall school wellness and certainly in the aspect of school food, I think ushered in what I consider a very robust Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act that uh, many were engaged in and supportive of and continue to be, and certainly SNA is one of those. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's been a a good decade of gradual progress to get us to the point uh, that we're experiencing now, and we certainly are in a good place where school meals are concerned. Yeah, and and, you know, just for the record, how do you both feel about having a robust Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act? Jean, you want to start with that? Well, you know, as you mentioned, Laura, you visiting our school district, clearly, you know, I'm in support of strong regulations in term for, for our meal programs that um, look to have the healthiest meals possible. But I think part of the challenge with the new regs is, you know, we have been, as, as was St. Paul, we've been ahead of the curve relative to what most Americans are eating. And oftentimes a school food that we are offering is not what kids are used to in their own homes and restaurants. Um, You know, we continue to work, and I'm seeing great examples out there of taste tests, farm to school, and other programs Mm -hmm. that school food service operators are looking to implement to try to, you know, get kids to that place where they're accepting of new meals and new tastes. Right. So, in, and you you mentioned the word rollback, Jean. So, I, I want to talk about words because I think in the c- current conversation, they they can be used in so many ways and mean different things to different people. Let, let's start with the word flexibility, um, which is innocuous enough sounding, um, but I feel like in the context of conversation around um, child nutrition reauthorization this year, it, it can become rather loaded. It, it, it's come to connote different things, different people and different factions. What, when you say flexibility, what does it mean to you? And I'll, that's a question for Jean. Well, first I want to say, you know, it's really unfortunate that people haven't acknowledged how much we all agree on. SNA supports strong federal nutrition guidelines, including limits on calories, unhealthy fats to combat childhood obesity, you know, we've endorsed and the mandates to offer students more fruits and vegetables with their meals, especially um, the variety that's now being offered and clearly half of all grains being whole rich. So while we see that those are important and we are completely in support, there are just a few areas where it seems too prescriptive mm-hmm. and that our, our hands are really tied when we're trying to plan menus. So what we see is a consequence of uh, participation decreases, and I'm certainly seeing that in St. Paul, shrinking revenue, and higher costs. And, you know, in some ways, what's happened actually is it's hampered our efforts to invest in scratch cooking and higher quality products. So those are the consequences of um, some of this, what I would call, uh, really prescriptive um, right. rules. And then that word rollback. Lynn, can you comment on that? Is is that a word that you use or your colleagues within SNA use? No, that, that's not a term that we would use. Uh, we're, uh, the term that I propose has been tweak. We're mm-hmm. looking for minimal modifications that make products uh, uh, more appealing 
to students. For example, the, uh, I'm constantly speaking about the whole grain rich items because in many areas of the southeastern part of the country, some of the items, once they become saturated with whole grain rich flour, uh, lose their inherent quality. So mm-hmm. it becomes an issue of offering students foods that are not the same high quality that we have in the past. And that's just not acceptable where students are concerned. Mm -hmm. And then when you talk about certain products, I think you're talking about um, things that are special in Southern food culture, like biscuits, right, in particular. Uh, That's been a hot button. Corn muffins or cornbread, Mm -hmm. yes. They lose their their high quality once they become saturated with the whole grain uh, flours. And uh, that's not a a problem with the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, per se. That's just an implementation issue. We can Mm -hmm. offer children these products that have slightly less whole grain rich flour, and they're much more appealing to students. So we're seeking that uh, middle ground where we have high-quality products that are affordable and are appealing to students. We want students to eat the meals that we offer. Uh, They're so helpful for them. Right. And Jean, you you told me an anecdote about um, brown rice versus white jasmine rice in your community. Um, You know, it was in regard to serving food that's culturally sensitive. Can you... Tell us a little more about that. Sure. Um, We have, um, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, we have a very diverse population in St. Paul schools, which has allowed us over the years to really engage with families and talk with them about um, their experiences. And when um, we have an immigrant population moving into the district, as you can imagine what the first day of school looks like for a five-year-old coming up to the cafeteria line, um, experiencing American food for the first time. Um, we've, we've really looked to engage communities to be able to create some menus that um, represent the, the place they came from, mm-hmm. their home country. And for us this year, we or last year, we looked at um, what we got some complaints and concerns from our Karen community, which is an immigrant population, um, that was in their country viewed brown rice as the rice that they fed to animals. Mm. Um, so for for them, um, being served brown rice was really um, almost insulting. Mm-hmm. We took a look at what they are used to eating for, um, in particular, breakfast. And it, uh, a jasmine white blend rice had been successful with Second Harvest. Mm-hmm. And so that was what we um, experimented with and um, introduced our kids to and got um, very uh, good satisfaction from our students. So that's being rolled out to uh, additional schools where we have um, a larger population of current students and also Hmong students. Right, right. And that's you said that was mainly a breakfast item, and these are kids who really need to be eating school breakfast. Absolutely. Right, right. Well, um, so a little bit more about flexibility in whole grain. I mean, so they, the official position of SNA is they're advocating to a return to 50% whole grain rich, which to simplify a little roughly means that only 25% of grains served across all menus would be required to be whole grains. And I have to say to many, a return to a, the 50% whole grain rich standard really does feel like, you know, a rollback. Um, and I just, you know, it, it's, it, it, it seems to me that what you're saying is this is a cultural issue. Um, but with regard to some of the more commonly consumed products made by big industry like sandwich breads and holy hoagie rolls and so forth. Is there an issue there? Well, I, 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 I think there are many products out there that are very acceptable. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's really a shame that folks think that um, 
somehow this impression that if it goes to 50% or we go back to 2012, mm-hmm. that somehow, boy, miraculously, we're going to, you know, or we're going to just start serving junk food to our kids, or we're going to stop serving whole grain products that are acceptable to kids. Why in the world would we do that? This is not the association. These are not the members that um, believe in in that kind of a, a, a response. If we can find products that are acceptable to children and are cost-effective, we're going to serve those to our kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, my sources within industry tell me that they're now comfortable at 100% whole grain rich, you know, that uh, by and large acceptance is not an issue anymore. Their costs are under control. Um, and more waivers or another change in the standard would negatively impact supply and cost. And you know, how would you respond to that? Well, I don't think you can make white rice into brown rice. Um, I don't think you can turn risotto into a whole grain product. There are products out there that are not going to ever become whole grain. And Mm -hmm. there are going to be some products that are going to be a superior quality. Lasagna noodles are one that we just really haven't had success with. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't don't think that that's really the answer that OG manufacturers have figured this all out. Mm -hmm. Um, We still are having issues with it. And I think one of the concerns is that while there is a waiver available, it is not available to all states. Now, Minnesota was a state that did um, allow for the waiver so that we could, in fact, serve a different product to our kids. Um, But it's not everywhere, and that just doesn't make any sense to our members. I see. see. So, Lynn, I want to ask you about um, something that happened last um, March in the Haywood, North Carolina schools. Um, They received a waiver for traditional breakfast biscuits, as many other districts um, in your state have. Um, But in this case, the district threw a heavily publicized celebration with free biscuits and gravy for students and staff. There was a press release in which the superintendent of schools stated, and I'm quoting here, food selection should be a family matter and not a matter regulated by the federal government. And and, and this is in a community-eligible district with a child overweight and obese rate of 39%. And heart disease among adults is the leading cause of death. I mean, is your office in a position to respond when this kind of thing happens? Well, I will tell you that we heard from the Haywood County Schools early in the process. Mm-hmm. They were concerned about student participation. Yes, they do have many uh, food insecure families in this particular area, but they were concerned that these food insecure children were not consuming the foods offered to them. Mm-hmm. What we've seen since is that the whole grain waivers are working. Student uh, trust in the meals that are provided to them, the student preference for these foods are beginning to reflect their participation, their desire to participate. I've not seen the quote from the uh, uh, superintendent that was mentioned. What I've seen from superintendents is that they are concerned about food quality and mm-hmm. some of the products have changed, and this has spawned uh, students' lack of participation in the program. They, too, are reaching out to say we need to do something to ensure that all of our students, and most certainly our most hungry students, are getting the nutrients they need to fuel their, their, fuel their bodies and to help them academically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Jean and Lynn, here's something I, I probably should have said at the outset of our conversation. Um, the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Bill is due to be marked up this week and sent out to both houses of Congress for a vote on September 30th. Um, and it's unclear whether any of this will happen on time. You know, mostly what I hear is speculation about delay and the negative consequences of delay. Um, So I just wanted to remind or tell listeners that Gene Ronnie's statement to both 
congressional committees overseeing um, child nutrition reauthorization was released about an hour ago this morning. Um, and you'll find a link to that on today's show page on InsideSchoolFood.com. Um, so speaking of SNA position, I think it's time for us to talk about our most important topic, which is money. Um, it's the top item on SNA's 2015 position paper, um, a request for additional reimbursement, the same 35 cents that Jean argued for in 2009 when she appeared on the Splendid Table. I know you both have a lot to say about this. Uh, Jean, do you want to start? Well, the reality is our programs, school meal programs, are self-supporting within a school district. They're not set up to um, take money from the general fund. Of course, the general fund is where we pay our teacher salaries and um, for other other school-related expenses. So my job, at least for those 24 years, was to make sure that we had a self-supporting program and we needed to pay for, we have to pay for our own workers' comp, our labor, our medical expenses, um, equipment, and food costs, supplies, and actually trash costs, all of those types of things that are associated with probably running a, a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, over the last few years, it has been extremely challenging for St. Paul to break even. In fact, we've lost money the last three years. Mm-hmm. And some of that has to do with a lowering of our participation rate and an increase in food costs and labor costs, not all of which is directly respo- or, or attributed to um, the regulations. Mm-hmm. But eight out of ten of our programs across the country are... Um, having to take steps steps to offset financial losses. And we're seeing that half of our programs have reduced staffing. And the reduction in a la carte services has actually had a negative impact on programs as well Mm -hmm. as less revenue comes to the program. Mm -hmm. Um, You said that not all of the um, issues with cost are directly related to the um, new nutrition standards and the costs of the additional food, the fruits and vegetables. I think that's a really important point. Um, Lynn, do you want to comment on, you know, what are some of the costs that, and I think the rest of us don't think about very much um, attached to school food and and why, why those are going up? Well, we have seen an increase in the cost of fruits and vegetables. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. We've also seen issues with supply and demand. And one of the uh, areas that uh, we, for which we're advocating is that students not be required or forced, if you will, mm-hmm. to take an item they do not like and do not choose to eat. Our goal is to offer as many fruits and vegetables to students as possible and certainly as many fresh, locally grown as possible and allow students to choose from those items to make those selections, but not necessarily to force them to mm-hmm. take it at the point of service. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, we, we do see in order to bring about more scratch cooking, we see an increased cost in commercial equipment. Uh, we're, we see the need to refit many of our older school nutrition facilities to make sure the, the equipment does accommodate their kind of food preparation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You you commented to me when we spoke last week, Lynn, um, you referred back to the... Um, famous child nutritionist Ellen Satter with regard to your feelings about mandatory fruits and vegetables. Do you want to revisit that? I'd be happy to. I've always been an advocate of Satter's work, and and she describes the feeding dynamics model. That's the relationship between adults and children when it comes to helping children establish healthful eating habits uh, that will essentially last them a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that dynamic is simply this. 
adults decide what will be served and available to students, when it will be available, and where it will be available. So we determine uh, the, the kind of foods. Uh, is the choice today going to be broccoli and carrot? That's, a, that's an excellent example of a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a choice between broccoli and fries, for example, may not be the best choice. <laughs> it's still within the adult's prerogative. But mm-hmm. we establish the options available to children. And then children decide how much or whether they will consume those items. Mm-hmm. So I am concerned that as we go down the path of continuing to force students to take foods that they do not uh, like and do not intend to eat, that we are crossing that fine line between the adult's role and the child's role. And we create some confusion and, and so, certainly perhaps some ambivalence in the school cafeteria when it comes to making food choices. We uh, want all children to, to have a, a very healthy, positive dining experience in school breakfast, lunch, and after-school snacks. So to create an environment, again, where we're forcing children to do something mm-hmm. that is isn't probably over time not in their best interest, I, I certainly have a question about that. I'd like for us as an association and as a, as a nation to consider that. That's a very interesting perspective. Jean, I, you know, as I said, when I visited um, your district in 2009, there were free, you know, all-you-can-eat salad bar, free range. And, and I know that you've it's been harder for you to afford that model now, um, now that children don't have the choice, now that they have to take. Can you talk about how the business model has, has shifted as a result of the regulations? Well, I agree with Lynn in terms of... Um, a, a the, the way we offer students fruits or vegetables makes a huge difference. And, of course, at our household, the way we um, presented fruits and vegetables to our kids over the years was by choice. And mm-hmm. that has um, proven, I believe, to be a great um, way to do things in St. Paul as well. Um, kids can take a little of this, a little of that. They can try one piece of this or one piece of that and um, grow to like fruits and vegetables. Uh, We find kids are really pushing back when we tell them you have to go back and grab a piece of fruit or a a vegetable that they didn't want in the first place. Mm -hmm. What I would tell you about where we're at currently with our financial struggles, what we're doing is we're not able to offer the variety of fruits and vegetables that we used to. So, you know, it's more carrots, more celery, less pineapple, less pea pods, some of those more expensive fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And um, we've gone actually back to offering juice at lunch. We had been really proud of the fact that we were not doing that and we were offering um, kids all they cared to eat, fruits or vegetables. But we're at a point where um, we don't want to chase high school kids into the cafeteria to tell them they must take something. So juice is back on that menu, and I'm hearing a lot from my colleagues that are doing the same thing. I've heard the same, yeah. Um, just switch gears for a minute in our, our final minutes with Eugene, because I know you need you need to go um, just shortly. Um, I, I'd like to you know briefly talk about the tone of the discourse about school food in the press and the blogosphere. Um, you know, a lot of people who write about school food have been using these kind of warfare metaphors since you know, I, actually, I don't know when it started. If we dial back to October of last year, I think, I think we all remember the New York Times magazine article um, called How School Lunch Became the Latest Political 
Battleground. Um, and it was a major piece. It was widely circulated. And it's laced throughout with this militaristic kind of language, um, skirmish, war, war among one-time allies, foes, attack, taking sides, you know, et cetera. And, it, and more recently, an article in Civil Eats talks about the, quote, upcoming congressional food fight. It, it, it's, and it says that, you know, SNA is leading the charge to, you know, once again, that word roll back nutrition standards. I mean, you two are the new leaders, and both of you have been long regarded as child nutrition heroes. I'm sorry, even heroes is sort of <laughs> militaristic. Um, but w- what do you make of this kind of language, which is, feels ubiquitous to me? Do you feel like you're fighting a battle? And Lynn, do you want to take that? Did you say Lynn? Yes. I apologize. Yes. Okay. I, I, don't, uh, I don't feel like we're fighting a ballot battle. I think that we're all very concerned about offering our students the very best we have to offer. I think we're in an environment where, as you mentioned earlier, the, the rhetoric has escalated to the point that it does uh, appear as if there is a, a skirmish out there. But we're all focused on the same thing, and that is healthy children. And so I'm excited about the conversations that we have among the various groups. I think it's important that we are very clear in our message. No one intends to roll back the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. We simply are seeking those flexibilities that eliminate what has been described as a challenge for many operators. Mm-hmm. The challenge is in not in implementing the standards. I think you've, you've heard uh, that our, our federal partner says repeatedly 95% of all school districts have implemented the, challenge, the standards. We have implemented them successfully. What we're seeing now is a cost of implementation. Mm-hmm. And we do believe that with minimal flexibilities at the local level, we can begin to return our, our program to being one that is more student appealing and is yet more financially responsible. It, after all, it is a business. It's a business of providing nutritious meals for students. But I believe we can achieve these goals. I'd look forward to having more conversations with those who are concerned about the rollback question, because mm-hmm. that's certainly not our intent. Right. And, and I'd say regardless, uh, you know, for my part, regardless of any of my guests' point of view, I always emphasize that civil-sounding discourse, civil discourse is is how we best serve the children. Um, you know, we need to unpack these things and have a conversation and not um, use loaded words, um, which just divide us. Um, You're right. And if we think about teaching children, not just about healthful eating, but about how we go about addressing issues of concern and, and when, we, when we agree and when we disagree, mm-hmm. how we go about effective problem solving, I think speaks volumes to our students, just as it does by providing them healthful meals every day in the school dining environment. Mm-hmm. It teaches them lifelong healthful eating habits. Right, right. So we have to go to station break now, um, and when we come back, we will. Jean will be leaving us. Um, but I would. I have some more questions for you, Lynn. Um, so, Jean, I've been. It's been great to have you on, and I look forward to having you back. Um, you are listening to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network today. A special conversation with the newly elected leadership of the School Nutrition Association, President Jean Ronnie and Vice President Dr. Lynn Harvey. Please stay with us.
This one's called Write It Down by The Landing. We'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Welcome back to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. Today we have a special visit with the newly elected leadership of the School Nutrition Association. We have been speaking with President Jean Ronnie and Vice President Lynn Harvey. Jean, unfortunately, had to peel off for a meeting, but luckily we still have Lynn with us. And Lynn, I have a few more questions for you. Um, I think one of them is um, really a topic that... Um, it's, it's, it's a position that I think a lot of our listeners wish the SNA had taken um, in its 2015 position paper, and, and that is um, adequate time to eat. Um, I think you're probably aware that there's a new um, study just out from the Harvard School of Public Health regarding how much uh, how children are affected when they don't have enough time to eat. It's very clear that they aren't able to take in a balanced meal when they don't get more than about 10 minutes after going through the line and settling down. Is this something you feel the SNA can take on as an issue in the year to come? Well, I think it's important for us to help educate all education leaders about the role that school meals play in helping children achieve their academic best. Uh, at the end of the day, we recognize that the amount of time that's devoted for school breakfast or school lunch is, is a local decision. So our goal perhaps could be to continue to educate those local decision makers about the importance of allocating adequate time. Mm-hmm. Adequate seat time, that is. It's, it's not enough just to give time to walk to and from the classroom. We have to recognize that once the cafeteria becomes uh, filled with hungry students, there's going to be a little bit of a delay time in serving those students based upon what their particular food preferences will be. But it's certainly a conversation we need to begin having now with those local decision makers. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's great to hear um, because I, <laughs> I feel like a lot of the issues we're talking about today um, and a lot of the areas where there's disagreement would would fade into the background if two things happened if you got that extra reimbursement you're asking for and if children actually had time to eat their lunch I think that's certainly a very positive step forward. It, it won't necessarily negate some of the items that we've spoken about earlier today, the, mm-hmm. the need to have flexibility, uh, especially to reflect the, the cultural and the food quality issues that have recently emerged as a result of mm-hmm. the requirement for all grains to hold, be whole grain rich. But it certainly is a, a positive step forward. Right, right. The, the Harvard study appeared to suggest that um, children would eat more of their fruits and vegetables, mandatory or not, if given time 
time because what they observed was that kids were not just eating one food and throwing out another kind, that they were taking um, a little of each but weren't able to consume all. So that, that's a, you know, a positive finding, a helpful one, and certainly an argument for more time. Absolutely. I think the Harvard study does provide us with compelling data that we need to go forward. And I think that as we mentioned this in the, in the p- previous position papers, we've really never had the kind of data that this study provides. Mm-hmm. And our position paper has always been driven by data available to us and, of course, by feedback from our membership. Mm-hmm. So in the absence of that data, we, we were perhaps reluctant to move forward into an area where we felt there was such strong local control. Right. I hope we see more data of this time to support mm-hmm. what length of time is optimal to allow students to listen to their own internal cues related to hunger. I've shared with you in the past as well that I'm concerned that in, in an environment where children are forced to eat as much as they can very quickly, mm-hmm. that we're, we're perhaps teaching them to tune out their hunger mechanisms, and uh, this can of course, lead to the path of overeating into adolescence and adulthood. So it certainly is a topic about which we need to have more conversations. And again, against the backdrop of those other areas that we believe are um, can be modified to mm-hmm. reflect our goals in, in school nutrition, right. like the whole grain rich, like the uh, uh, addressing the sodium issue at this point. Right, uh, right. Oh, sodium's a big one, Lynn. <laughs> Do you want to go there? We hadn't planned on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that where I'm always happy to go is this. Our commitment in the School Nutrition Association is to make certain that we offer children the most appealing, affordable, nutritious meals available to them. And it's, it's critical for us to listen to children. When children tell us that something is not tasty any longer because we've modified mm-hmm. to a point that it, it's, it's not so, then we need to listen to that and go back to the drawing board. Uh, we certainly all want to respect the importance of, uh, of nutrition in this program. Mm-hmm. It is the cornerstone of the program. At the same time, we have to listen to what children are saying to us about what they will and will not accept. And we, we want to continue to listen to the scientific community, to give us more specific information about the sodium levels in children's diets. Mm-hmm. I think just like the issue of the amount of time for meals, we, there's still a lot of data collection. There's still a lot of uh, scientific evaluation that we can apply to these subjects. The same would be true of sodium. We want to hear more about what science is telling us on how sodium levels in, in children's diets now affect them now and, and into the future. And, and to say that we've made great strides in this program, certainly over the last 10 years, in significantly reducing the amount of so- sodium in the program, we mm-hmm. should all celebrate the progress we've made in that arena. Right, right. And, um, you know, this is not a science program, and I'm not a science journalist, but certainly I agree with you. Um, what I've observed is that the science on sodium isn't clear yet, and um, there's, a lot, there's a lot more to know. So, and this because I think more and more our congressional representatives, representatives are going to demand from us uh, some evidence to show is the program creating children who are healthier and less hungry? That's mm-hmm. a question I'm asked frequently. And so I think it's going to take all of us to, working together. And there's a lot of passion on this issue. So let's mm-hmm. pull all that passion. Let's dial down that strong rhetoric. And let's look for specific answers to some of these questions, evidence-based answers that let us know that, indeed, as a result of what we're doing, children are clearly healthier and they are less hungry. And hopefully, together, we're going to eliminate child hunger hunger in our country. I think that's a goal everyone wants to see. Right, right. So, so finally, Lynn, um, you know, just speaking about process of change, culture change, um, 
I'd like to talk about um, what happened at ANC this year on the exhibit floor. Um, sadly, as you know, I wasn't there, so I was following, um, you know, via Twitter and social media, and I, I kept seeing, I, I felt like some of the coverage of the exhibit floor was skewing kind of negative. I, I can't tell you how many times I had to look at the same image of these Smart Snacks compliant pink frosted cookies on Twitter. Um, but, you know, when I spoke to Jean, she said there was just a, she's seen so much change on that exhibit floor. And I, I'm sure you did too. I wondered if you could just comment on what was there, what was exciting, what to you signaled a change? Well, there was, there clearly was an opportunity for industry to provide uh, new products available. I, I think, as we mentioned earlier, industry continues to do their very best to meet the standards. But sometimes the standards may appear to be arbitrary, and so you continue to adjust the mix until you have finally a product that meets the standard. But does it indeed meet the student's need, and certainly does it meet their taste and their their appetites? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things, one of the products that I tested on the floor this year that I was so excited about, it's a new fish product. Mm-hmm. We need to include more fish in, in the school nutrition program. The products I tasted were amazing. I felt confident they would appeal to students. But, of course, the testing comes when we bring those products back to our, our local schools and we allow students to taste test. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, a critical link as well as we move forward to expand the school nutrition menu to make sure that we're getting constant feedback from students about what they like and what they'll choose to eat. In the, in, of course, against the backdrop of having the most nutritious foods available to them. Great. Jean also commented on the growing presence of equipment manufacturers showing at ANC, um, and of course, the growing presence of produce distrib- distrib- unit distributors. It was it, it was impressive to see what we call produce row, mm-hmm. uh, where we saw all the, the products that were available from a variety of areas. Just as a reminder that uh, that, that portion of the food row is getting larger and larger mm-hmm. every year. So we're seeing fewer of the products that, uh, unfortunately, don't meet the standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're beginning to disappear. But I would comment on, on a conversation that you had earlier about media. I had opportunity to speak with media while uh, at ANC, and what I discovered is that the reporters were often speaking about their context with the school nutrition program. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are the foods they remembered from 20, 25, 30 years ago? Those are the things they were looking for just to see where the new replacements had been. So I agree with you. Some of the, the media comments were a bit skewed mm-hmm. because those reporters were looking for those things they remembered as children in their school nutrition program and probably very affectionately remembered. Maybe I really enjoyed the chocolate donuts when I was in high school. I shouldn't say that on the air, but I just did. I think that's one of those uh, <laughs> situations that we all look back upon and say, this is the kind of progress we've made in the school nutrition program uh, across the nation. Right, right. So, Lynn, we're, we're going to have to wrap up. This is one of our longer conversations on Inside School Food by Design. So I thank both you and Jean for agreeing to come on. And I wish you both the best of luck in your demanding new roles. And I, and I hope to get you back on the show and your term of service is drawing to a close next year. Thank you. We look forward to that opportunity. We thank you for bringing attention to this important conversation and helping us to uh, examine some of the language used in discussing uh, the school nutrition programs. We hope that this will be an opportunity to clarify to many in the public 
that the School Nutrition Association is about providing the most helpful, nutritious, appealing meals to students that we can provide. Okay. Um, you have been listening to Inside School Food. Today's guests were Jean Ronnie, Chief Operations Officer for St. Paul Public Schools, um, and the newly elected president of this SNA, and Dr. Lynn Harvey, Chief of School Nutrition Services for North Carolina Department of Public Instruction and the newly elected SNA vice president. Um, the resource links to today's conversation, and there's a lot of them, um, they can be found on today's show page on InsideSchoolFood.com. Um, next week, Dale Hayes of School Meals That Rocks, uh, that rock, sorry, returns to Inside School Food to talk about back-to-school innovations for 2015. And this show will be starring you, our listeners, so there's still time to leave a voicemail for broadcast. That's how we're going to do it. We're going to be going through our, our voicemail messages. So trust me, it's really easy and fun to participate, and you will find a link to instructions on the homepage at InsideSchoolFood.com. Um, today's break music was provided by The Landing, and the theme song to my show is by Techstar, and many thanks to our sponsor, Cane Vineyard and Winery, and many thanks to you, for all of you, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please tell your colleagues uh, to subscribe to the show on iTunes, um, and feel free to get in touch with us at uh, InsideSchoolFood.com or HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Um, uh, next up, a short clip of another heritage program that takes on big issues in food systems. It's called What Doesn't Kill You by Katie Kiefer. We do have this assumption that if a little bit is necessary, and then a lot must be better, and you know, at very worst, it must be neutral. And I came to the conclusion that that's not really a good attitude to have, because yeah. if you think about anything else that you would take, Tylenol, I mean, even water, if you need a certain amount of it to get rid of your headache or stay hydrated, that's one thing. If you were to drink 15 gallons of water at one time, you could die. Yeah. So the same thing with, with vitamins. And yeah. Award-winning author Catherine Pierce joins Katie Kiefer on episode 126 of What Doesn't Kill You, sharing the dirty truth about vitamins and why these supplements might be doing more harm. Than good. And also, when you get beyond like the amount that you could naturally get from food, it's really no longer a nutritional supplement. It's really more like a drug. And when people say that you just pee it out, you know, people will say, oh, take as much of the B's and the C's, which are water-soluble, as you want. You'll just pee it out. But that's there's a big gap between the amount that you need, which is minuscule, mm-hmm. and the amount it will take to saturate your body and then have it come out in your urine. It's kind of like a house plant, right? Like it needs a little bit of water to stay alive. Right. It takes a lot more water to get it to totally saturate the soil and then drain out the bottom. There's right. a big gap in there. And that big gap can cause its roots to rot or do other bad things to the plant. So I just don't think it's a good idea to constantly saturate our bodies with high doses of any of the vitamins Mm -hmm. um, because we just don't know what that does over time. To delve deeper into the facts and fiction of your daily food habits, tune in to What Doesn't Kill You every Monday at noon and anytime at heritageradionetwork.org or find us on iTunes. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 